0: Hi and welcome to the new episode of the Plants and Papets podcast. Hey guys. I'm with Tegan today. (laughs) I'm with Joram today. Hello and uh, nice to have you again on our new episode. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what I'm saying. Let's do that again. Hey, welcome
1: guys. Um, Today we're going to discuss two different um, articles and then have some fun facts as we normally do. Um, My article is going to be about recognition of kin in plants and Joram...
0: I will talk about vernalization.
1: Mm. All right, I think I get to go first. Yeah.
0: Yes, you go first.
1: I like how you just like dropped vernalization. You're like, that's it. That's exactly self-explanatory. Like,
0: that's the, it's a cliffhanger. He'll explain Look it later, up.
1: you guys. <laughs> yeah, you have Google. Do it yourself. We're just here to talk, and drink your arms gin. Um, yeah, so I'm talking a, about a recent paper. Not that recent, actually. A paper from two thousand and twelve. That's very recent. <laughs> it's recent in the context of my life and my development as a human. Um, it's called photose- photoreceptor-mediated kin recognition in plants, um, and it's from New Phytologist, written by Maria Crepi and um, Jorge, I guess, Casal. Um, yeah, and I basically came about this because I was playing around on my phone, and my Google Now popped up something about crown shyness or um, canopy shyness, which is a phenomenon that I actually hadn't heard about before. So it's this idea that if you look up sometimes in some sort of um, forest, you see that none of the leaves or branches are overlapping. Um, and basically you have this weird like tectonic plate kind of looking breakup where... It's look
0: like a, yeah, like a pattern. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit of... The, are these, um, fungal growth patterns where they inhibit each other mm-hmm. and then they form these islands and they just barely touch but don't really
1: yeah and um, for me it's like i mean i'm australian i have this idea of like dried up um, mud so when the the mud yeah. like cracks and then it has like leaves these chasms in between it so basically you look up and you see um the darkness of the leaves and the canopy but then there's these ca- chasms of in this case light where none of the trees are touching each other and this is called canopy shyness Um, and this is a phenomenon that's actually been discussed in the literature since a long long time since the 20s or something like that and i'm bringing an australian link here because um one of the earlier recorded discussions of it is in the 50s by an australian botanist his name was maxwell ralph jacobs and he noticed that um certain species of eucalyptus had this phenomenon Mm. where all the different trees of the same species just didn't want to touch each other and then um it was discussed a bit more later on, um, in like the 80s, um, looking at some other species, so Larix camphrey, a Japanese larch, and also um, Picea sitchensis, the Sitka spruce, um, and yeah, Miguel Franco also observed this phenomenon in these species and noticed that again, there's no touching, and um, there's a different few different explanations that come from this. Um, the the probably the easiest to explain is basically that there's mechanical abrasions. so the tips of the plants when they touch each other they basically break so okay this is the idea that the the outgrowing tips are very very delicate if they do touch it kills them and therefore you get this kind of yeah gap. The, yeah
0: yeah so the very yeah the delicate ends right the yeah yeah
1: um yeah the second example i quite like it's the idea that um certain microorganisms infest these plants and therefore the trees um don't let each other touch because this would allow the the organisms to move from tree to tree and this kind of assumes a certain amount of ability to communicate and some yeah, sort of like yeah,
0: there would be some sensing that yeah, the other tree has a microorganism that you don't want to get
1: some sort of intelligence and there's the studies about this that like plants can hear the sounds of caterpillars munching and things like that so i mean it's not the, the, the most far-fetched um and one of the other ideas is, is then that it's a shading thing. So again, this is involving communication and kind of discussion between the plants that they should not shade each other. It's mutually beneficial to yeah. not overlap, basically, because you yeah. waste resources. Um yeah. So this was this really cool phenomenon I found, and this led me down a bit of a wormhole. And I was reading the a Wikipedia article and this gave a link to this new phytologist article and I started reading the article and at first I found the, the concept in the article just like so unbelievable that I, I really was like, I've got to read more about this. So that's kind of why I ended up following it up and discussing okay. it today. Cool. So again, it's called Photoreceptor Mediated Kin Recognition in Plants. Um, so the photoreceptors are these um, basically light receptors. Um, and kin recognition is the idea of being able to tell who your brothers and sisters are, who your close relatives are, as opposed to more distantly mm-hmm. related organisms. And um, the idea of kin recognition is quite known throughout many different organisms and different kingdoms. And of course, we know that in humans, it's a common phenomenon that not only do we recognize our kin, but also we preferentially help our kin. So um, yeah, in in pretty much all vertebrates, it's shown that they will preferentially help closer relatives. Um, And one study in humans, for example, shows that if you increase the, the cost of helping, then we switch to give more help to our kin and take away help from people who are not our kin. So we move how we partition our helping resource if okay. the cost is higher. So we, we again- So
0: family first.
1: Yeah, family first. Um, and a bit more basic, there's um, Dictyostelium, slime mold, basically. Yeah. And this is a super cool amoeba, which is a social amoeba. So it has this life cycle where it's um, at one stage it's kind of um, unicellular, and then they all aggregate um, in a kind of colony and they form this multicellular thing based on like just like the body system. And from this, they then make a fruiting body that then produces like the, the young for the next generation, the spores. Um, yeah, so it has an amazing um, life cycle, but they also found that the chance of forming these multicellular like collectives is higher when there's two cells that are closely related to each other as opposed to like letting other people like more distantly related um yeah yeah, into the collective and um this is quite basic because it's a single cell and then um of course if you have kin helping you need to first recognize your kin and in the the case of the slime mold they can recommend uh, they can recognize each other based on some so the type of gene involved in the the sticking of the cells to the other cells so they have certain allele certain um
0: like gene areas, like a certain uh, gene types, types of
1: the gene. Yeah. yeah. And if it's the same, then we'll to stick together basically. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's so a really there's like
0: very small variations <laughs> that, like, that don't change the entire function of the protein, but just enough that there is a difference between like closely related and far related.
1: Yeah. So to have this like this idea of kin recognition and then benefit from kin recognition, as I said, you need the first to be able to recognize your kin and then you kind of need the response to the kin. So like then doing something about it, yeah. usually like helping them out. Um, Yeah, and the recognition is is quite difficult and the response is also kind of something a bit difficult to to really gauge and quantify. Um, Again, back to the human example, they saw saw that like sibling co-residence is how we define kin in many ways. So even if it's somebody who's not really like your biological kin, living with somebody defines how likely you are to see them as kin, I mean in the less biological turn and therefore help them out, this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so of course, if you're looking at kin recognition in plants, you first have to ask, does a plant know who its kin is? And does a plant even know if he's a plant or like...
0: Yeah. yeah. How do they recognize others before yep. even deciding kin the, or no kin?
1: Yeah. And so at the very broad scale, we know that plants can recognize others. So um, we know that, for example, at the DNA level, that um, many organisms have the ability to recognize one foreign DNA comes into the um, cell. And Joram yeah. um, actually recently wrote an article about CRISPR-Cas9 about yeah. how like bacteria recognize viral DNA.
0: Exactly. And then they can uh, identify that DNA integrated into its own genome and use it as, as a detector for a second time when a virus comes and then detect this viral DNA and uh, cut it into pieces and sort of disarm it. Um, yeah, and so- so it, and it's, yeah, it's really on a DNA level that this happens. It's sequences and uh, sometimes epigenetic markers, which are markers like on top of the base sequence. And with that, yeah, really on a single cellular level already, you have this distinction between us and them.
1: And this, this can happen in many different forms. So, I mean, this is an example of something trying to invade you, but also there's obviously um, interactions with mutualistic symbiotic partners. So you're going to help me out if I let, let you kind of share stuff with me. I'll share stuff with you. So like nitrogen
0: in root cells.
1: Like <laughs> nitrogen in root fix, fixing um, legumes. Yeah. I, uh, nit-
0: nitrogen fixing in roots Thank you, of legumes.
1: There we go. Um, yeah, so we know, we know that most organisms can recognize non-self. Um, at the individual rec- uh, level, we also know that many um, plants are able to recognise whether it's themselves or somebody else. Mm-hmm. And can you think of an example of this one?
0: Um, yeah. So it's when when. There are some plants that can self-eat, can self-themselves. Is that the right grammar? So they can... (laughs) They can
1: self-fertilize, basically.
0: Self-fertilize, yes. You don't need another plant there so they can produce the next generation, while other plants can't do that. So apple trees, for example, the most that that we grow, they require another apple tree that is the opposite sex, so they can have fruits, while, for example, Arabidopsis, our favorite model organism, can self. So they just... Its own pollen... Um, fertilizes its own eggs and then it goes into the next generation um, and you can have one single Arabidopsis plant and it will always go into the next generation while a single apple tree will eventually die and not uh, um, be fertile.
1: Yeah, so some plants they don't want to self, they don't want to self-fertilize and they have different ways to avoid it and some of them are like structural ways. They make sure the pollen is like lower than the female part, the stigma, but there's also some chemical ways where their own pollen basically can't make the pollen tube form and stuff like this. So we know that plants can recognize other species and they can recognize themselves versus other individuals. Um, But then the discussion of of kinship gets a little bit more complicated, but there are also some kind of um, studies that have shown that um, they can recognize things that are closely related to them as opposed to other, for example, ecotypes. Um, Mm
0: -hmm. So ecotype is the same species, but evolutionary distinct ecotypes so for example if you would again look at arabidopsis the ones that grow in central europe um, have different genetic markers than the ones that grow for example in northern africa Um, and although they're both arabidopsis taliana plants they are different ecotypes and you find that in all kinds of species
1: yeah so one example there's a study um back in 2010 we'll put the link in the show notes um where they showed that if they expose um, young Arabidopsis seedlings to some liquid media containing, like, the the root exudates, so kind of um, chemicals that have been coming out of other roots, and they um, put them from the themselves, from non-sibling strangers or from siblings, you got different responses um, depending on whose root exudate it was. And um, if it was that from a stranger, they were more likely to have um, roots, lateral root formation, so roots going like outwards, whereas it was um, from their sibling, they were less likely to have these
0: outwards Mm -hmm. going. So whenever they see strangers, they try to take more area, they try to cover more space.
1: Perhaps, yeah. But um, there's a bit of controversy about this whole king recognition and response to king recognition, um, because it can be quite difficult to differentiate between um, helping people out and just um, comparative competition, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, different abilities to compete. So uh, there's a study um, which came out in New Phytologists in 2010 uh, by Masclough et al. And it's uh, titled competitive ability, not kinship affects growth of Arabidopsis thaliana. And here they again use these different ecotypes or accessions um, and they looked at the biomass. um, So either how much uh, plant matter there was or also the seed, so how many seeds these plants were um, uh, producing uh, based on whether they were grown with a, a related neighbor so one of their same accession or somebody different and they basically found that they couldn't link this any positive advantage to being with kin or not being with kin okay. what they found in fact was that some species were just uh, some sorry accessions were just better at competing and those ones tended to out-compete Okay. The the weaker ones, so they did better when they were with non-kin because they could, like, outcompete compete the weaker ones. Yeah. Whereas so if other you have ones, a class
0: where all the kids are strong kids, you won't see anyone rising there because they can't... they all the same strength.
1: Yeah, but if you put that one strong kid with a lot of weaker ones, he's going to win. And so these, yeah. these ecotypes, they did better when they were with others. Um, but then the weaker ones obviously did better when they were all the weak ones together because otherwise yeah. they would just get beaten to a pulp. Um, <laughs> yeah, and there was also a... Um, A similar study um also in 2010 which again looked at kind of a similar concept and again they found that it was um genetic variation leading to tolerance and ability to compete which was really the driving um force behind this and just um two examples of this kind of like kin and non-kin relationship and communication in the plant world that was um, written in the introduction of the study that i'm talking about today one of them is artemisia tridentate um, which is just a big sage bush apparently and um, they found that it had a different response if it was exposed to volatiles from um, clipping, so kind of um, cutting off bits Mm -hmm. of the leaves of nearby neighbors. This is like mimicking herbivory. Um, So it had a different response when it was close relatives than when it was distant relatives, the, the plant's response. Um. So
0: just as an explanation for volatiles, these are compounds that are volatile as in they go into the gaseous phase. These are uh, often like signal molecules or um, sometimes the the molecules you can smell from flowers. These are also volatiles. And this is an important way for plants to signal stuff to other plants or to insects or other organisms. uh, um, Yeah. So they had these like smelly compounds or these like volatile compounds in the air that they could sense and they could sense different response from or they would react differently if it was their own smell or if it was the smell of a distantly related.
1: Yeah, but I mean, you can already see some problems here. So if I grow one plant with a whole lot of its other um, buddies, it does better or worse. It's, It's very hard to say if that's because of the buddies or because of some other factors. So I can think of an example here where the more closely related organisms ha- you have, you might engineer the ecosystem in a way to be favorable to your type. So um, keep the water table low or something like this. Or on the other hand, you could say, if there's a whole lot of the same species, you would attract um, a pest that's um, specific for that species and it would thrive better. And then you would do worse because all of the bugs are in the se- So that's, yep. this is a very indirect thing where yes, they have their kin next to them, but it's not actually, any kind of kin recognition or positive thing it's a it's a secondary factor of yeah. um yeah competition or herbivory or some other selective pressure um and another example was that they saw ambrosia artemisiifolia, which is an annual ragweed um and they found that when they were growing in stands together they had more mycorrhizal partners um, so that's these
0: that's these microorganisms that live in some symbiosis with the roots of the plant, and they exchange of the nitrogen for uh, carbon compounds. The, car- the plants give carbon; the bacteria give nitrogen compounds.
1: Yeah, and so they found that when they were growing with kin, they had more of the partners than when they were growing with strangers. But again, you can see how if there's a whole group of them, it might be easier for this bacteria to thrive, and this might yeah. just like reach a critical mass. So, one of the problem with these um, these measurements of of kin recognition and the the um, the consequences is it, the consequences themselves are very hard to first to measure and then to directly relate back to the kinship issue, um, and that's especially true because people often uh, measure things like biomass and measure um, seed setting, which are all very quantitative, but they are kind of can be secondary effects. So it's yeah. very hard to say what yeah. what makes that those things change. Okay, um, so this. A study that I'm talking about today had a couple of things that it did to try and make itself a little bit different from the previous studies so firstly it put the plants in pots instead of them growing them all together and this is because there's already some evidence as I said that there's below ground happenings um, going on not only with the um, chemicals coming from the plant themselves but also from all of the the bacteria and stuff in the soil so they wanted to rule that out um, and the second is that they didn't measure things like biomass and seed production they primarily looked at leaf positioning um okay yeah which is less likely to be linked to competitive success because yeah the position of the leaf is not a growth output yeah as such um and basically they looked at Arabidopsis thaliana and they looked at um various different ecotypes which um, have again as we said different features because they come from different um areas of the world originally yeah um so basically they did some fairly um easy to understand experiments they made a single row of the plants like seven plants in one row one after the other um so let's say from left to right you have this row of plants and then grew them from seedling in this row and looked at where the plants positioned their leaves and Mm -hmm. You might know that plants actually have some flexibility about where they put their leaves. They they can they can choose to a certain degree, and they even move their leaves depending on time of day and shading and things like this.
0: Yeah, there's some really nice animations you can like look up online where um, people did time courses, and you see sort of these move these leaves um, sort of moving up and down throughout flapping the day, flapping around yeah.
1: like birds in the wind.
0: Yeah, so it's they to us they look uh, not moving because they move so slowly, but they actually have quite a um degree of freedom there.
1: Yeah. Um so in this first experiment they put the plant in a single row from left to right. And some of them they were in a single row with just their same accession, so col zero with col zero. Um and in some they were mixed up with different accessions. And they saw that if you put left to right the plants, the plants when they're grown with their kin, they mostly put their um, their leaves up and down instead of left and right. So mm-hmm. they, they angle the leaves in the space away from the people to the left and the right or the plants okay. left and the right. Whereas this phenomenon was not so strong in the plants where they were with um, the non-kin.
0: Okay. Yeah. So they sort of made room for their kin. They, they did not grow in the direction of the others. They, they grew perpendicular, the right word?
1: Yeah, they put, their, they put their leaves into the empty spaces as opposed to just randomly putting their leaves. So it wasn't that the plants with non-kin were putting their leaves all into their non-kin. They were just putting them more randomly around the whole like mm-hmm. radius of of, um, uh, of the plant. Whereas these ones were like putting them away from the other guys. And they saw this in plants that they grew from seedling, but they also tried taking plants which were grown... Um, not together and then putting them suddenly in a row with friends or enemies and they found that over the course of five days these plants like tried to move the angles of the leaves that had already grown so Mm -hmm. they actually saw this kind of torsion where the leaves were twisted to try and like Mm -hmm. get them out of the way which is kind of a cool phenomenon yeah so as we already kind of mentioned a little bit plants actually do move their leaves um they move them as they grow but they can also move them during the day um yeah and this can happen in response to various things but one of the most common reasons plants move their leaves is light because as we know plants love light they need light to grow and getting light is pretty much their only aim in life
0: and you probably know that from like if you have t- uh, cress growing and you have that next to the window they all angle towards the window and if you m- turn rotate the pots then they the next day they're all moving again towards the window so they can actively during their life cycle change the direction that they grow in and they always want to go uh, often they want to go for the light
1: yeah so as yeah actually yeah, i'm just introduced perfectly the thing because um yeah plants move in response to the light intensity that's one of the big things so when shading happens they want to like get out of the shade basically and also different qualities of the light so some light has more wavelengths that are um more able to be captured by the plants and some yes. lights qualities is not so good yeah. Yeah. If,
0: for example if you have a shading leaf uh, you often have that in, in forests and the top layer of leaves takes away already all the a lot of the photos uh, the, the wavelengths that can be used for photosynthesis because they have a very similar mach- uh, machinery to collect that light so the light that actually shines through um, has less of that um, wavelength that the plants below that need and then you also see these adaptation effects where they either change on a molecular level the the, the optimal, wavelength that they can absorb or they try to avoid these shaded places?
1: Yeah, so this, this phenomenon is um, a decrease in the red light relative to, to the far red light. So it's called a shift in the the red to far red ratio. And you also get a, a loss of the blue light. So these are different wavelengths of light which show up as different colors in our vision. And this is a phenomenon of shading. Um, but actually shading happens progressively. So when you think of shading, you first think of one tree growing above another tree and then the sun can't come from the top but actually if you have trees growing um, next to each other then there's a kind of shading an artificial shading happening just from them growing nearby and this is because plants absorb certain amounts of light and that means they reflect other types of light that they don't need so if one plant is growing right next to another the light bounces off his leaves and reflects back onto the other la- plant mm, yeah. and the plant next to it then sees that reflective light as almost shading it so it's called horizontal shading it's mm-hmm. it's not actually being physically shaded yet but it's getting a shift in this a red to fire ratio and a shift in the blue light so it's indicating that there's some sort of competitive loss of light and this is the first kind of shading that it can it can perceive yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and just because it's going to come up a little bit later, the plants have different um, mechanisms to recognize types and intensities of light. So, the red to far red ratio is perceived in the plant mainly by something called uh, phytochrome B, and um, blue light is mainly um, recognized by cryptochromes. So, phytochromes and cryptochromes are these kind of things that recognize yeah. different yeah. lights. Yeah.
0: These are the photosensors from the title.
1: Yes, indeed okay so um as i said already they, they noticed that the the kin when they were growing in a row were moving their leaves once um they'd already yeah. grown for a bit put them next to their kin they move their leaves out of the way so they wanted to see if this was related to sensing of these different far red and red lights and these blue lights so they then brought in the phytochrome and the cryptochrome mutants
0: mm-hmm.
1: so these are plants which no longer have functional phytochromes or no longer have functional cryptochromes and therefore they can't sense this horizontal shading, this shift.
0: Yeah, they're sort of blind to a specific color of light.
1: Yeah, and the idea is if seeing the color changes in the light is making them move their arms or their, their leaves around, then the blind plants shouldn't be able to move the leaves and that's exactly what they saw. So when they used the fire mutants and the crypt mus- mutants, they in fact saw that there wasn't this movement of the leaves away from their kins.
0: But how how do they distinguish the kins at that level? Because I imagine that the two ecotypes still have a very comparable uh, photosynthetic machinery, so they reflect the same amount of light.
1: We'll come a bit to that a little bit later on. But yeah, at this point, they used the mutants in... um, The mutants were made in the Coal Zero background, so they had the same genetic...
0: Um uh, yeah. makeup
1: as the COL Zero. Um so they use that as a kin. Um except that they had this one or two genes knocked out. Yeah. So they, they looked at the problems with these these blind mutants, these non this this bad photoreceptor mutants. And they also looked at a SAV3 mutant, and this is basically a downstream mutant. So the photoreceptors are the ones that see the light, but then they tell, pass on a signal and something else makes the changes. And it's, it's actually auxin, which is um, responsible for the changes in the positioning and the, the growth of these leaves. Um, so SAV3 is just a mutant which um, it can see the red light, but it can't respond because it has this downstream process shut off. Um, and they use this mutant as well because the the blind mutants, the cry and the foe um the the fight phy- phytochrome b had um some also problems with the way they grow, so they didn't look quite like the wild type, so it was mm-hmm. impossible to make really um strong claims from these, so they also use this downstream mutant, so it had two benefits yeah um, um this is all very nice, but How do you really know? Okay, you have these blind mutants that can't see the light and they're not responding. It's it's quite a good clue. But is there any other experiments you can do to see if it's really light? And yes, what they did is they... Could
0: you just shine these wavelengths at them at different intensities?
1: They basically did that. So instead of shining the wavelength, they basically stimulated a plant being next to a plant by putting a green filter next to a plant. And this has the same effect as a plant leaf where it'll absorb certain um wavelengths of light and reflect the others and the control for this was that they used a clear filter which should not mimic a plant and again they say this saw the same thing so when there was a green filter which was having this change in the the far red to red and the blue light they the plants moved their leaves out of the way from their neighbors or in this case the clear bit of plastic the the green bit of plastic fake neighbors the fake neighbor and um when there wasn't when there was a clear plastic they didn't move. And this gives firstly a backup of this first hypothesis, but it also means that it's unlikely to be a communication of these volatiles from one plant to another plant. Because yeah. Yeah, now it's, you it's f-
0: physics pretty much at this point in that Exactly. Chemical. Yeah.
1: Now you have plastic also communicating. So unless the plastic knows the language of the plants, it's like it's not happening with this kind of like
0: was it BPA free that plastic? I heard that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
1: Okay, so this is kind of complicated. um, And you asked already, what's the mechanism? How can this possibly happen? And one of the things that they suggested, and I think this is really very simple and quite interesting, is that it's the shape of the different plants. Okay. So... (laughs) bear with me for a little bit basically the different ecotypes that grow have different shapes and depending on their size they reflect and block different parts of the light so this is again imagine if I'm standing next to somebody who's exactly the same shape and size as me and the sun's behind them they're going to block all of the sun but if they're shorter than me I get some sun if they're way taller than me I probably still get sun sun because it comes in between like their legs or their Yeah. yeah so depending on how similar the shape and size of the plant next to you you're more likely to lose an a certain amount of light. Yeah. So yeah. if two objects that are exactly the same shape are growing next to each other, there's gonna be more loss or more change in the light quality. Because it's it's all happening at exactly the same like vertical level. Yeah. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it makes sense, but like on a on a in a controlled environment I can totally see that, but Okay, well how, how did they evolve to that when it's when the, the distance, like, this looks like an optical phenomenon, and then you have, like, distance between plants have an effect how much shade you have. And, like, you may, if you put an object in front of a candle, the, the shadow, it, it, uh, it throws against the wall. It's very different Okay, but on like, the distance. Now
1: you're asking the question, why? And we never ask why in biology. I mean, yes, they, that's true. this is what I actually like about this paper, because, as I said, when I first read it, I was like, this seems kind of insane that a plant, plant can be like, hey, you're my brother, like, we're going to, like, cooperate. But in the end, it's just physics. It's just, like, literally, mm. like, the perception is really just having the light blocked. And, of course, plants can perceive light.
0: How, how did they... D- did they do then the same with the filter, where they cut the filter into different leaf shapes to mimic different ecotypes? No,
1: instead what they did is they um, looked at the different ecotypes and they looked at how um, the red to far red-ratio changed at different um, vertical levels above the ground, depending mm-hmm. um, on the different plants. So, obviously, like... Uh, one ecotype it has a very tall um like uh, uh, you should
0: look at the, the images uh, that we link the below figure, yeah. In, yeah. The, in, the, in the paper but
1: one of the plants has like a very th- uh, long thin um, stem and it kind of looks a bit like a palm tree it has its leaves all at the top yep. so of course it's blocking um, a little bit of light at the top but it's not really making much difference where there's this long thin stem whereas another ecotype grows very close to the ground and it's kind of got its arms like out in spoon shapes and then of course depending on where the leaves are and how fat they are it makes different blockings of yep. it, and then shifts the red to the red ratio and also the ratio so mm-hmm. yeah i really like that it's like yeah the mechanism makes it all make much more sense than this bizarre idea of like yeah. hey you're my friend like yeah.
0: of, of smelling it and being exactly able to differentiate um mm. through volatiles um the yeah. different the, the, the kin or no kin
1: and if that's not convincing what was more convincing to me was that they did another test to see whether or not they it was actually the size and the shape as opposed to the the brotherhood of the plants can you guess what that might be
0: i just put a um a sheet of glass in between them so that the light and the sh- shading can pass through it but nothing else could pass you could like if if it's just light and light quality put something clear that doesn't filter any relevant wavelength and put it in between them and then you can exclude that it's anything but optical signals
1: Okay, they didn't do that. I guess they already can do
0: that. <laughs> Smarter than the authors. Yoram
1: is now reviewer number three. And he's like, dear dear authors, please go back in time. And I would like to change this. No, I think they did actually something much cooler and much simpler. Oh, so <laughs> if it was kin recognition, if I, pla- if I plant two plants who are brothers or sisters, as the case may be, um, and I plant them one week away from each other, they're still siblings, but one of them's one week delayed in growth. Yeah. So they should still recognize each other. However, if this idea of the shape of the plant is important, then the the one week in growth will make a huge difference to the size and shape of the plant and the effect will no longer work. Yeah, And that's exactly what they saw. So oh. if they had just seven days of age difference, the plants could no longer recognize each other as kin. So this is the idea that the bigger plant was now no longer blocking in the right way. The smaller plant was no longer blocking in the right way. So they now no longer saw each other, I mean, saw each other as yeah. Like they Yeah, no or try, had to,
0: try to avoid each other's yeah. shade.
1: Yeah, so in, in this case, neither the young nor the old change their direction of growth. Um, so finally, kind of at the end of the paper a bit, the authors discussed like why you would move your leaves around. Um, and I think it's kind of obvious. If you grow into each other, you both shade each other. So you both have a net loss. Yeah. So it's better if you both move your leaves away from each other The problem is you might then shade yourself. So if I put all of my leaves into a much smaller space, I'm probably going to have a little bit of overlap between my leaves instead of overlapping with somebody else. But they said that probably the benefit is greater than the cost and they could actually measure that. So they looked at um, plants which either overlapped each other or didn't and they saw that there was an increased seed um, yield when they moved their arms out of the way and this is where they used again this um, Sav-3 mutant so this is the Oxen mutant downstream of these um, blind mutants these light seeing mutants and um, basically the wild type moved their um, leaves out of the way Um, the Sav-3 mutant didn't move their leaves out of the way and that means that they were all like blocking each other and they found that not moving your leaves out of the way actually has a cost. So they had less seed yield in the Sav3 and obviously they did the correct controls where Sav3 grown by itself has the same amount of seeds as a wild type grown by itself. So it's not something about the mutation. It's something about the ability to move these leaves. Um, What was quite funny is they also found that Sav3 would act as a selfish cheater. So that means that if you put all of the Sav3, um, in with the wild type, the wild type will move out of the way, which means it won't get shaded by SAV3, but it will also bear its own cost of rubbing, like yeah. shading itself. And the SAV3 can't move. So we'd actually got higher yield than the wild type when it was grown with the wild type, because it would just like, yeah. be like, screw you, wild type, I'm gonna grow here. And yeah. then it would have, yeah. <laughs> so like you guys move off the way. I instinct. won't. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So overall, the question is, does it mean you grow better or worse when you're growing with your kin? And of course, there's, there's, again, this, this cost-benefit analysis. So they, of course, did the experiment where they grew plants in this, this long left to right row of seven plants, um, all the same or mixed with other types. And in this case, they measured how many seeds they got from different plants. And actually, they found that some plants grow better when they're grown with kin, and others grow worse when they're grown with kin, and this is basically what they have shown in other papers that competition and the cost of competition then comes into play. So for some, okay. it's a benefit, and for others, yeah. it's not. It's so not a benefit at anymore. At this
0: point, it's not a clear answer. But well, it's
1: they said under their conditions. I mean, they said you definitely can't extrapolate from our conditions to other conditions. But uh, for example, Col and Lair, so two um, of our commonly used um, accessions, grew better with kin. Uh, nope grew better with non-kin, so maybe those ones are just better at competing, out-competing their non-kin, while RLD, which is another ecotype that I don't know about, um, did better when it was growing with kin. But on average across these, I think seven or so uh, sessions they used, there was was no significant change. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so the take-home is basically that the plants are sensing this kind of horizontal shading before there's actual vertical shading, which is quite a cool phenomenon, I think. Um, they recognize it with their photoreceptors and there's the downstream play of oxen um, to change the the angle and the growth of the leaves um, to redirect them to grow away the leaves. And this can have a, a net benefit to them generally because they won't have this, this mutual shading. And um, the final word from the authors was basically that this has some relevance to us because when we grow agricultural crops we grow them really closely to each other so we grow them in these stands really thick so understanding how plants move their leaves to maximize the amount of light they get is actually quite relevant because it'll come down to how much we get to eat in the end
0: yeah and what would you say how likely is it that this is also a mechanism that's then in the trees because that's where we started right do you think the tree canopies do some of this horizontal shading or Arabidopsis is quite different from a tree yeah um, uh, do you think based on the on this paper that it's it's likely or is there no way to say by uh, at this point?
1: I guess there's no way to say it. I didn't look too much into the the um crowding phenomena that I started off the crown shyness um to me i I like the abrasion the best like I like this idea that like the little guys just can't get mm. out um but that's that's completely made up in my own mind and what I what I think of. I mean, this has no yeah. bearing on anything. Um, yeah. I'm not sure what the research that the
0: yeah. I mean, you at. could test it if you would grow them next to a wall or something and see if they the, the wall or other physical non-tree objects. Yeah, you create should. I mean, these these gaps you have between this, the crowns. Where you have this
1: border, you should cut away the nearby tree and then put like one of these green shields or these clear shields and see if the other tree comes into it or doesn't come into it. Um, yeah. But I'm not sure how. I'm not sure how easy it is to rule out abrasion with that sort of thing. I mean, you can no. say if it grows only when there's a the green and not when there's a clear, or sorry, the other way around, then it's maybe relevant. But yeah, I, I imagine up there there's a ton of wind. So I mean, I really
0: yeah.
1: But I'm not I sure, and I'm I've actually I'm not familiar with this. I haven't seen the phenomenon with my own eyes, to yeah, be honest. And I'm I'm really like, curious I now to look up like
0: the European trees that I. Observed and where I, where I looked up, I've never seen this happen.
1: But they are also like most of your trees are not evergreen, so then they like, they lose all their leaves, and it's a bit it's a bit of a different yeah. dynamic, I would guess, than yeah. something like this. But yeah,
0: yeah, but it's really cool to have a very like very basic physical phenomenon deciding on such a for for, for an Arabidopsis anyway, large scale re, uh, result like the change of its of its leaf angles and so on. It's it's as big as it gets for an arabidopsis what it can what it can do
1: And I, I mean I really like the fact that we we have this tendency as people to always try to anthropomorphize everything we always want to be like it recognizes its brother and it's at the end of the day it's all chemicals and it's all like like yeah. thing like just yeah it's it doesn't have to be that complicated and I really like it when it's something where it's like yeah this is not about being brothers or being like it's just about being the same shape like it's just you blocked my light like that's yeah. all it is I, re- yeah. I think it's really cool yeah
0: really yeah. cool cool thanks for, for that and then after the break um, we'll have a look at the paper about vernalization dun dun, dun 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 and we're rolling again
1: and we're rolling, rolling, rolling.
0: God, no, that's a terrible song. No. <laughs> okay. And uh, welcome back from from the break. Um, now we come to my paper. I will. Uh, I brought today the oxygen-dependent proteoly- uh, proteolysis Proteo-
1: proteolysis
0: proteolysis proteolysis. Oxygen-dependent <laughs> proteolysis regulates the stability of angiosperm polycom repressive complex two subunit vernalization two. Holy crap. Yeah, that sounds very exciting. Um, to be honest, I only found this because somebody else uh, wrote uh, a good summary about this and then I understood what this paper is about because that title didn't help much. Um,
1: You're not really reassuring our listeners' um, <laughs> confidence in our abilities here.
0: <laughs> no, it's just, if you if you take it apart, you can figure it out. But um, the Polycom Repressive Complex 2 is the name of a, of a protein complex that we will talk about. Um, And so it uses a lot of words in the title and it doesn't actually explain a lot if you don't know already what it is. Um, So what I will talk today about is vernalization. And this is, do you know what this is? Because I had to look it up.
1: Sure, I know what this is.
0: (laughs) What is it, Tegan?
1: It's a change from growth to making babies.
0: Exactly. That's what I also (laughs) figured out. Um, And this transition in Arabidopsis is super visible. You should
1: say that a little bit more, like, officially than what I just said then. (laughs) So if you
0: want to use scientific terms, it's uh, the transition from uh, vegetative... Vegetative. Vegetative, I'm sorry. It's a transition (laughs) from vegetative growth to reproductive growth. So Mm -hmm. from just making more of the plant to making offspring. And this study has been done in Arabidopsis, and there it's a very clear thing to see right you have arabidopsis growth in these rosette leaves um so this very flat two-dimensional structure and then at one point it starts making shoots and on the shoots there there's flowers and the flowers turn into then siliques and then seeds eventually
1: and usually it's about like cold right like so i mean the the vernalization the the idea is that it's like they make seeds because it's cold or something
0: yeah so there is a, a necessary cold period and um after the cold period then the uh the vernalization ter- what's what like happens and the reproductive growth uh, takes place and um yeah what is where do we why does it uh why is it linked to cold
1: uh, i guess because the plants know that they're not going to survive a long winter as a vegetative form so they have to put the seeds and the seeds are usually a bit hardier and they can like hide in the soil and then come back with the next spring right
0: and it's also the the fact that it's yeah, that it usually happens after winter in spring. So when the cold period is over, then the the transition happens to um to the reproductive growth. Um and that's also in in, in Arabidopsis here. Wait, so, then
1: I I have it exactly wrong.
0: No you <laughs> For, uh, so the cold has to happen, and for some pl- some plants, um, I think they start already while it's still cold, and some wait for the cold period to be over. And in this experiment, in Arabidopsis, apparently they um, the the after the cold period, then the entire process starts and it uh, starts to grow reproductively. Um, so for that's why it's important for plants to know when winter is over, because then in springtime they know they can. Uh, Reproduce reproduced the temperatures are favorable that they the new shoots um when or when they set seeds and they fall down and they grow again that they don't uh f- freeze to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, or for example water availability is also a major factor always that uh that they need. So that's a vanalization. Um and this is a process that they looked at here and the central player for vanalization is PRC2 or the polycomb re- recessive uh polycomb repressive complex two. And I'm going to call it just PRC2 now. Um, I tried to look up why it's called Polycom. I could not find a reason for this name. I think it's a very peculiar name and I I could not figure out uh, where it's from. So uh, maybe the original researcher was named like this, but even that I couldn't
1: find. (laughs) Mr. Polycom, Dr. Polycom to you.
0: Um, so this complex is a major player in cellular processes. It's involved in um, questions of cell identity. So if it's a, a leaf cell or a stem cell or a root cell, uh, it's involved in the develop, uh, developmental transition from one cell type into another, and it's involved in en- environmental memory, which then plays part into like the whole cold stress and
1: like epigenetics or what um talking?
0: yeah it's also epigenetics that's exactly what's what's happening here um that this uh, prc2 uh has epigenetic activity so it it changes secondary um structures of the dna so methylation um uh, acetylation so stru- uh, changes of the dna that don't change the code but the the backbone of the dna and that uh, and this
1: makes it easier or harder for genes to be expressed then because if they're all like wrapped up in a bundle for example or change in certain ways maybe it's it's harder for transcription (coughs) to happen so it's harder for rna to be made and it's harder for the genes to be expressed basically
0: yes uh and so the changes that this prc2 um uh, induces they are mitotically stable that means also across cell divisions these changes are kept which is important again for the uh, the whole cold memory, because if the small plant has seen the cold, then uh, also all the cells that afterwards originate from the, from this original material, they are already changed with this sort of memory. Um, and PRC2 is found in many eukaryotes. It's not only in plants, but um, there's homologs of that also found in mammals, but um, Plants have many more different uh, subunits and variations of it, so they have more adaptive uh, kinds diversification, of diversification. There's yeah,
1: yeah, in the plants. Okay,
0: and so it's it's a across many organisms a very important complex, but um, although you uh, we know now that it's involved in many of these different processes of cell identity and so on, um, how it ex- actually works is unknown, which is fairly often nowadays. Like mm-hmm. I've, this. This um, description exact, is something I've seen very often. The
1: exact mechanism of what it's doing, like yeah. within the cell is is not clear.
0: And um, yeah, just a little bit about the structure because this will become uh, important later on. It's a, it's a complex that's made of four subunits. So protein complexes um, are uh, made up of several individual proteins that on their own. Sometimes have a function, but most of the time are not functional. But when they come together, they can um, achieve more. They can actually work. They have an enzymatic activity. Um, yeah, and in plants, as I said, there's multiple uh, versions of of this complex, and they can recruit additional proteins to adapt. So it's sort of like a Swiss Army knife, right? They they can. They themselves, this complex can already work in several different processes, but it can also recruit other proteins that attach to it and then specialize it in a specific direction. And here we have this um, attachment of the VRN2 protein, which is vanilization 2.
1: That's
0: um, what the paper is about. Mm-hmm. This is what the paper is about. Um, can attach to this PRC two complex, and okay. this is our main player. VRN two PRC two is our main pa- uh, main player in here. Um,
1: okay, that's the complex, yeah.
0: And that's the complex. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way this complex works is through something. I hope uh, again. I think I always pick like the stuff that's a little bit complicated because here um, this whole thing is involved in vernalization and therefore also in flowering and. Um, It works by silencing a repressor. So there is a repressor protein that's called flowering locus uh, or FLC. And this stops the plant from flowering. It's like hitting the brakes the entire time on flowering. Mm -hmm. And then the VRN2 PRC2 complex, so our player of this paper, comes and silences the uh, uh, FLC, so the repressor of flowering, and therefore inducing flowering.
1: Okay, so it's an an inducer and activator, but indirectly (laughs) indirectly by stopping something that's stopping something.
0: (laughs) Yeah, by sort of like taking off the brakes um, and then uh, starting the flowering. Mm -hmm. And so this is involved in when it's it's cold for long and then gets warm again then flowering begins and uh before this paper nobody really understood how that works how can this temperature change induce that okay um uh another thing that comes into play here now is <laughs> um the idea that uh, of of regulation of of proteins or, or gene expression or how do you control st- how much stuff is in a cell, right? Where there are several ways to do it. You can
1: control the rate at which it's made, but you can also control the rate at which you get rid of it, right?
0: Yes. And um, the the first one is then is called the gene expression. And there there's like transcripts and transcript stability play a role there. And it's pretty much how much mRNA is made, how stable it is and how much protein can be made then. And the other way is you just make continu- continuously the same amount of protein, but then you just degrade it when you don't need it, Um, which sounds like a wasteful process, but allows for a much quicker regulation of it because uh, when you always have this pool there, you can uh, much easier degrade it or let it accumulate for a while. And for that, there's a a certain... One of the many ways this can happen is a certain uh, pathway for degradation. It's called the n end rule pathway. And while this whole thing is rather complicated in when you look at it in detail, what you have to know is that at one end of a protein chain, I mean, a protein is a, a chain of amino acids, if you look at one end, there can be specific sequences that trigger degradation. Mm-hmm. Um, In this case, it's a combination of uh, methionine and cysteine. When they are behind each other, the cysteine gets modified and then the entire protein gets degraded. Um, And if you would have another sequence instead of methionine and cysteine, you would have methionine and alanine, then this thing would be stable. Then suddenly this motif would not be recognized and the whole protein stays stable. Um, The other thing that's important... I think
1: it's it's the penultimate, it's like the... is that true yeah yeah the penultimate amino acid then
0: yeah so the cysteine in this case and like the the methionine um is always there then the cysteine or alanine the presence or absence of cysteine there decides the fate of the entire protein and um this happens by very specific enzymes and these enzymes uh, rely on the presence of oxygen or nitric oxide Uh, otherwise they can't work um and this will become then later on important in in the study of this work, um, yeah. So um, the first thing that they checked, so they, they went into this paper and they, they knew that there is um, this VRN two um, complex is involved in the flowering, and they've seen from the from the studies of the protein that there is this NN rule can uh, could potentially be a candidate here for the degradation because they saw in the sequence of the peptide of, of the protein, they saw that there is the methionine and the cysteine. So then you potentially, this is uh, degraded constantly through this, through this specific pathway. This is pathway. in the
1: sequence of the vernalization protein. Yeah. Okay.
0: The VRN2 protein. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that, they, they hypothesized that these proteins might be degraded Uh, through this pathway so the first thing that they they um, checked when they looked at the different levels or as as a control for all their experiments is they checked that all um, expression elements every time the protein is made uh, this does not have an impact on how much protein they see accumulate just just as a as a word of sort of to um, to mention the control that they used in the in the beginning because now they will look at ma- many different ways of uh, what happens to this protein and they just wanted to make sure that it's not down to the gene expression uh, levels but to something that happens afterwards. So mm-hmm. the gene expression was always unchanged also for all the transgenes and all the other lines they created in the process of the study. Um, all of them were comparable and not the reason for the uh, effect that was observed. Mm-hmm. Um, so for for our scientist friends out there, it's called that the, what they saw was a post-translational effect. So something that happens after translation. So how do you test for the turnover of a protein? I mean, you said already like you can change, you can look at the way, um, how fast it is made. And then you can look at uh, how quickly it is, de- it is degraded. Um, And then what they did here as well, uh, so that's exactly what they did. They they set up a system, a cell-free system where they had all the components you need and that you have in a cell, but it was actually outside of any living organisms. They just isolated the the proteins and everything that is required for the system to work. Um, And then first they just um, overexpressed the protein. So they increased the expression level and they saw that VRN2 does not accumulate. So that the, the first observa- uh, observation was that the amount of protein you see is un, um, unlinked to the amount that you make in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Then to test that further, they um, added a chemical to the uh, entire mix where the translation is blocked. That means it can't make more protein. And what they saw then is that very quickly all of the protein was gone. They didn't see anything anymore. Then the other thing that they added is so… Um, They they didn't use the blocker for the translation, but they used the blocker for the degradation. And suddenly the protein accumulated. So now they knew this thing, this protein, VRN2, was highly um, regulated through this degradation process because when you switch off the degradation, you get more of the protein. Sure, yeah. And now what they did uh, is that they used this N end rule that we talked about before and they modified this one cysteine, this one amino acid in a protein. And suddenly it also accumulated again. So it it had the same effect as if the whole degradation machinery was broken. Um, and so they knew that this single amino acid is um, is uh, crucial for the accumulation of the entire thing. Um, so because this is all a little bit com- uh, complicated, and f- I think for us that we've seen this sort of study often enough, uh, it's sort of, uh, we, c- we can uh, understand it But I thought of it similar to to a bathtub, and you have a bathtub, and there is water in it. But you want to know actually what is the effect, which part of the entire system of a bathtub um, has an effect on the amount of water in there. And then what you can do is you can just uh, um, close the tap, and then see what happens to the water. And if the water runs out, you you know that there is a drain somewhere. Then you can. the next time you leave the tap running, but you seal the entire bathtub so that there is no drain for sure. And then you see that the water accumulates and then you know, okay, the drain seems to have a, a big impact. And then you can even figure out if it's like the overflow drain or the drain in the bottom by selectively blocking one of them and seeing what is the effect on the water level. And by looking at all the different sort of ins and outs of the system, you can figure out which one of them are important for the water level or the amount of protein that you have. And which one is less important, and this is the main uh part where they figure out how this protein is regulated um now that still didn't that didn't touch anything about the the temperature right this mm-hmm. is just this
1: is a bit artificial it's in like yeah. outside of the soil yeah
0: mm-hmm. um and so what they did next um they c- uh, created some uh some plants with the protein um where where it's expressed. And it has, it has a um, protein tag attached to it, so you can follow it around. Okay. Now you, you're able to follow the protein in the plant, in the biological system. And um, yeah, they just did a simple cold treatments for, uh, um, I think, for several days, and then brought them back into the warm temperatures and looked uh, at the levels of this VRN2 protein. And what I could see is that when it's cold, this protein accumulates, so it doesn't get degraded anymore. OK. Um, and once it gets warm, it gets, quickly gets degraded anymore. Um, uh, it gets degraded again, so there is this cold-dependent accumulation of the protein. Mm-hmm. And then in the next step, they figured out what it exactly does, uh, or they, they linked this to the, the known function of this epigenetic modification of this flowering locus. And they said, okay, when it's cold, this protein accumulates. It kicks away the other protein that stands on the brakes for flowering by silencing it, yep. and then flowering can happen. Uh and now comes the part that was, is a little bit um, less straightforward because they figured also out that this entire degradation pathway is depending on oxygen, right? Oxygen and nitrous oxide.
1: Okay, is that something that's already known about these degradation? Yeah, yeah, that's okay. known that's about that's the degradation mm-hmm.
0: pathway, but it wasn't known as an impact, uh, as an influencer for this, uh, for this particular protein. Okay. So now they, um, what are conditions under which plants might not see any oxygen?
1: When you overwater your plants.
0: absolutely. When you submerge your plants in water, then they can't get, they can't breathe anymore. They can't get any air, and that's also what they did here. They submerged the, the plants and then measured again the levels of this protein, and also then it accumulated. Although it was warm, you would before they could only show that it needed cold temperatures to accumulate. Now mm-hmm. it can also accumulate when it's warm, but there's no oxygen. So under submerged plants, it would also trigger flowering then. So if a, if a, if a plant in a field gets submerged from from uh, from rain or from like melting ice or something like that, they get submerged and flowering gets triggered.
1: So when you say submerged, you just mean the roots like are um, like flooded with water? or Do they put the whole plant I think under the, water? the
0: whole plant. Okay. So the whole plant. Mm-hmm. And I think they didn't do that for days because that would kill most plants. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, they did it enough that they could see this effect uh, for of the. Um, accumulation of the vrn2 protein and uh then they they had these two effects right they had the effect that under under cold this protein accumulates and under lack of oxygen this protein accumulates and both trigger flowering so they they thought what are the systemic similarities between these two processes and so this time they looked at the transcripts so the expression level of all genes uh um, under these two conditions, so when in, in the cold and under the lack of oxygen, and they realized that 20% of the genes that are upregulated in the cold are also upregulated under lack of oxygen. Okay. So that means the entire or part of the entire response of the organism is very similar between these seemingly unlinked processes. Um, but when they looked then at the genes, the conclusion that they, they drew from that was that this is mostly due to to um a change in energy availability when it's cold the energy uptake is not as efficient as when they are submerged in water and therefore it's sort of starvation and okay it's just general
1: stress of the plant exactly it's, a, yeah, it's pretty okay. much a
0: general stress response to uh-huh. to lack of energy mm. um, which they figured out through this process like sort of went uh, fr- came in from the back door f- through the back door to to figure this out um but yeah they they sh- could see this very strong similarity And in summary, what they managed to show is the the process of how this very specific gene uh, triggers the flowering uh, after, after cold stress, which is, when you think about it in molecular terms, pretty straightforward. It gets constantly degraded, and once it gets cold, this degradation machinery sort of slows down, that more and more protein gets made and accumulates, can be active, do its job, and then as soon as it gets warm again, it gets degraded again completely and this is, is gone from the system but the change that it uh, um sort of triggered stays there and then you get a shoot formation and flowers and seeds and everything yeah cool pretty um yeah i, I like this paper because it's pretty straightforward molecular biology like you do some some smart mutants and some mm-hmm. conditions and uh, you you look into this like degradation pathway This like constant i don't know bef- f- um Earlier, I always had the idea that you have this sort of constant levels of stuff, right? You make a protein and it has a job and then it's there, it does the job until maybe it gets, um, like it sort of gets old and gets degraded eventually, but it's pretty stable. But actually, everything is constantly changing. Everything is constantly being degraded. The world is in flux, yeah. Um, And that's what I liked about this paper.
1: I have a question about the... um this overlapping 25 percent of the, the the hypoxia and the the cold so generally you said it was stress responsive things but did they find any exceptions where they said okay this actually makes a lot of sense in terms of the conditions they were looking at so this flowering condition or they they didn't go too much into that
0: they didn't go very much into that because they were mostly working on the individual um, genes that were involved and uh, I don't think that it was a strong priority to look at that I think Actually I didn't fully understand how they came up with this. I think it was like an easy to do experiment on top mm-hmm. of the rest because they had all their mutants, they had everything ready and they could just quickly isolate some RNA and do the experiment. Cuz I imagine
1: analysis. like in like if I'm thinking about natural conditions in some cases there would be an overlap between like be- being very wet and then becoming very cold, but actually like in most places like becoming truly cold, you actually have decreased wetness as such you get like yeah. maybe snowfall, ice, but you don't get as much like Wetness yeah. in the soil, so yeah, hmm, interesting stuff.
0: Yeah, so now we know how why they why plants flower after the cold or how they do that. <laughs> at least we know one what, part of we it.
1: know everything now, yeah, everything
0: about at least one of the things because vine. what this paper doesn't go into is how like it's just this one flower repressor that's that's taken away, but there's more to inducing flowering and having the vanillation and just this one um repressor that's gone. Mm -hmm. yeah that's my paper for for today cool now we come to the next segment Mm
1: -hmm. my favorite plant (laughs) um yeah so i think it's my turn this week to talk about my favorite plant um, and actually, I was just uh strolling around the internet again, and I came across these ophioglossum, um which is actually not a plant, it's not a species, it's a whole genus of different plants. They are kind of ferns and there's about maybe thirty of them that exist. Um, and apparently the name is snake tongue. So if you look at um, some pictures on the internet, and we'll try to include a link in in the bio in the. Um, and the show notes there we go um, yeah it, <laughs> it kind of has this uh, like snake like shape um, of this spore bearing stalk that comes up from mm-hmm. from the base of the fern um, which is actually not the reason I'm interested in this plant Janice I chose it because I was looking up different chromosome numbers in different plants for something related to our webpage and I was looking for what's the most ridiculous amount of chromosomes that something <laughs> can have and this this award goes to the Ophioglossum. so it has 120 chromosomes which is just an insane amount of chromosomes like i mean the the number in humans is what like
0: 23
1: yeah 23 23 in me and then in the 2n it becomes 46 so yeah 46 as the um the normal diploid amount in humans and this is 120 um which if you can imagine, if you remember back from um, school when you have every meiotic division or mitotic division of the cell, you have to have all of these chromosomes like line up in the middle of the cell and then split so you get half in one. And have a look on the internet guys, we'll try and again put some some pictures um, in the show notes, but this is just such a ridiculous amount of chromosomes. <laughs> like, getting all those buggers lined up in the center of the cells just seems insane. Um, and on top of this, another thing about quite a few plant species is that they can have this polyploidy, which is where in some cell types in particular, you can have multiple copies. Um, so the base level is 120, but it can go basically up in different degrees, different amounts of 120. So 720 <laughs> is um, the amount of chromosomes that you can find in some cells of some of these um, individuals. So that's a hexaploid, um, basically.
0: Yeah. Wow. that's a lot
1: yeah that was basically my my only thing there's not so much research on this guy he's mostly just um the research (laughs) on him is looking at how many chromosomes he has and what the different relationship of the the different species within this um genus are but yeah it's kind of a fun one
0: yeah 700 chromosomes yeah and i remember i I don't personally remember but i remember reading about people doing the first cardiograms where they uh, cariograms where they would like take microscopic pictures of the the chromosomes and then then sort them and figure out like if some are if some of them are missing or mm-hmm. if there's multiple of uh, of any of them, uh, and yeah, I'm not uh, jealous of the person who has to do that for this species. Yeah,
1: it seems like it could be quite a problem. Yeah.
0: Thank you. That was a nice one. So that's
1: off your Gloss- off your glossum Sorry, is the the genus
0: glossum mm-hmm. Yeah. Off you go. <laughs>
1: Okay. um, Do we have fun facts today? I think we have some fun facts.
0: I have a small fun fact, um, a quick one, because I googled plants and pipettes, and surprisingly, (laughs) we were not the first one at Google. It's super upsetting. I hope you all, you guys, all help help us change that and make. Go like our page, guys, or whatever. Yeah. I don't know what you have to do, like hack Google and make us uh, number one. But right now, when I looked it up, number one was a paper um, that was looking at plant based pipettes or plant inspired pipettes and um yeah a pipette is um, a manipulator to transport liquids from a to b
1: very small amounts of liquids so yeah yeah like instead of having 250 mils you'd have in a normal glass you have one 250th of a mil so really (laughs) tiny amounts yeah
0: yes and uh, usually we have these like uh, displacement pipettes where you have like a plunger it's it's a little bit like a syringe. a bit more complicated in internals, but you have a syringe mm. that sucks something in and then pushes something out. And what they used is they they looked at a very specific plant, and I think it was a mercantia no, not a mercantia. Uh, I have it, uh, the a liverwort. Oh, no, mercantia, polymorpha. Um, so this this is a plant that has um, we we touched already a little bit about the uh, self incompatibility today, and this. Its mechanism is that it separates the male from the female uh, sex organs. Um, however, what uh, what can happen is that, uh, on, on top there are the, the male sex organs and they're sort of cup-like shape and then if a water droplet goes in there the pollen goes in the water and then it can run down the stem and there's a sort of inv- like an umbrella type shape with thick fingers uh, you should also look at the pictures that we put in the show notes it's here. like an
1: upside down
0: yeah like an upside down claw with um, I think eight to nine fingers
1: oh yeah it looks more like those claws in the the arcade game where you pick up the toys it's like that but with extra fingers or like the underside of an octopus yeah. Yeah, the underside of an octopus.
0: And this shape can hold a droplet and it can hold it quite well. And so this way, like the, the droplet with the pollen runs down and it can be sort of sucked into this little cup shape and then the pollen can reach its target. But they looked at that and they were actually not plant biologists, but I think uh, mechanical enge- engineers, um, because then they looked at this and they started up their 3D printers and they built artificial uh shapes like this this cup-like shape of this female organ from macantia and they built quite a lot of them there's nice pictures in the paper that we will link with different fingers and different angles and different sizes but in the end they built a pipette because you can submerge this little hand in water pull it out and it will hold a droplet and it will hold that to an um, astonishing accuracy the the amount of water and then can sort of tilt the whole thing at an angle and then the drop will fall out again so their idea was they don't have a, a good application yet, but they're quite sure that this is of great technical significance because <laughs> now you can build these these water transporting devices if you have very specific applications where you need... The, the, only one amount because this is not adjustable like our pipettes that we use in the lab
1: yeah it's, it's less practical than the current lab model of yeah. pipette that we have but it's it looks cooler guys it looks, it looks a lot really cooler cool. yeah because,
0: uh, it goes like this arcade machine in the water comes out with a droplet and it tilts it and it would drop it forward.
1: and there's 3d printing involved and you guys know yarm is a sucker for anything with 3d <laughs> printing in it so yeah it's yeah. quite nice
0: that's my little story
1: Quite okay, cool I have, I have something else, just um, basically because in the, the news recently, there was this discussion about a new 500-year-long science experiment that's happening. Mm-hmm. So I think it's at the University of Edinburgh um, where they're putting some small glass vials, like hermetically sealed, and they're putting um, a kind of bacteria inside the, the glass vials, and then they're going to open them over a certain amounts of... Um, time periods throughout the next 500 years to see how viable this is and apparently it's because um one of the scientists once saw this one type of the the bacteria so um it's called uh i really should be better at this but um yeah and they they left them on a dried petri dish for 10 years and they were still viable so now they want to see like okay if it can last for 10 years how long can it last um yeah so this is pretty cool but i just wanted to be the really annoying plant person who said hey we did it first with plants and mentioned that there's been a few of these kind of long-term experiments happening with plants um and one of the examples is from the msu so michigan state university in the us um where in 1879 uh, a guy basically put um a whole lot of seeds into sealed bottles they they, they look like these really old school bottles that you would use for like <laughs> letters in a bottle like throw them out to sea sealed them and um buried them um and they've now been uncovering them over the last years so this is now what 130 140 years something like this um and they now again they've been doing the same kind of thing to see how how long these um seeds will last and as a reminder like Plants also have this ability to last for an insanely long time. So there's one yeah. example um, of a date palm growing from what's supposed to be a 2,000-year-old date seed at one stage. So,
0: And wasn't yeah. there some, some seeds found in the permafrost where they also find like these mammoth um, uh, corpses um, and can do all sorts of genetics on the mammoth? But I think they also found some seeds there. And I think two years ago, I have to. I should look this up again for maybe for the next episode – they um, germinated one of these like f- permafrost uh, seeds that they just uh, thought um, then put on some some medium and then it was still viable. It was after and it was also, I don't know if it was several hundred or uh, over a thousand years old.
1: I'm running Google right now. There's an article that says a 32,000 year old plant was brought back to life. So I guess that might be what you're talking about. Yeah,
0: that's, that sounds plausible. Um, a
1: seed cage of Silane stenophila, a flowering plant native to Siberia, which was buried by an Ice Age squirrel. <laughs> and they, they had the radiocarbon We've all dated. We've seen that movie. We've seen that film. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they think that this successfully yeah. is from...
0: Yeah. So bacteria got nothing on us plant They people. got
1: nothing on us, guys okay i think that's a good place to finish yeah?
0: <laughs> thank you for listening um, yeah thanks guys like us on facebook you find us there at plants and pipettes we are on twitter at plants pipettes we are on instagram at plants and pipettes and uh, we have our website plants and where you find all information about this episode where you can comment comment um ask us questions uh leave your um uh yeah, leave, your, leave your comments on the things Make that we Make
1: corrections said. when we say the wrong things because that will happen from time to time. I don't think that
0: will ever happen. <laughs> the, the first one who finds something that's wrong.
1: Joram will give you his favorite cat. <laughs> Never.
0: <laughs> no. Um, yeah, so thank you for listening and until next time. Bye. See you later,
1: guys. Uh, join us next week, where I will be talking about the role of a heat shock protein in choosing when a seed starts to germinate.
0: And I will be talking about is junk DNA real junk. Tune in. Yes. <laughs> no spoilers. And <laughs> uh, tune in uh, in the next episode in two weeks' time in the Plants and Pets podcast. See you then.